When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, this show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Welcome back, everyone, to the 234th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms and Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. The school year has started, and moms, I am here for you. I'm excited to let you know that there are a couple of ways you can work with me this fall. If you'd like some individual mom coaching, we can find a time that works for you and meet on Zoom. It doesn't matter where you live, even though I live in Texas, I've worked with clients all over the world. This could be a one-time consultation, or you can work with me on an as-needed basis. Many times, situations with your teen or young adult just come out of nowhere, and you have no idea what to do, and you worry and stress if you're doing the right thing. And this is where 30 years of experience as a family therapist can help you. I can hold your hand, give you support and strategies in your specific and really complicated situations, which will give you peace of mind. One of my favorite things to do is to work with like-minded moms in a group setting. Why is it my most favorite thing? Because it's a place that moms can tell the truth about their lives and not be judged. It's a place where we can support each other. It's a way I can give each mom personalized coaching once a week. My most favorite thing is seeing the changes that will happen in your life and with your teen and young adult. Bottom line, these groups are transformative. These groups will give you support through all the ups and downs of this fall semester. If you have a tween or teen, then you want to sign up for my seven-week Power Your Parenting program. If you have a senior in high school or a kid in college or kid who's between the ages of 18 to 25, you would want to sign up for my Dial Up the Dream book club. I would love to give you lots more info about these groups. So if you're interested in some personalized mom coaching, or if you want more info about either of my groups, email me at Colleen, C-O-L-L-E-E-N, at dialdownthedrama.com, or you can reach me through my website at ColleenOGrady.com. And that's two L's and two E's. And these groups both start the first week of October. Again, there are two different groups. If you have a tween or teen, it's Power Your Parenting. If you have an 18 plus, that's Dial Up the Dream. Moms, I think you know my heart. I try hard to bring you the best guests on my Power Your Parenting podcast with really amazing information. But what I know is often you need more support to make real change in your life and with your family. Again, you can reach out to me at Colleen, C-O-L-L-E-E-N, at dialdownthedrama.com. Start this school year off right. You really don't have to repeat all the drama from last year. You can dial down the drama, the stress, the anguish, and have the relationship you dream of with your child. Get your energy, vitality, and happiness back. Email me your questions. This is for an intimate group of moms where every mom gets individualized attention. All right, let's get on to our episode. We have a wonderful guest today. Dr. Ellen Broughton is an experienced and prominent psychologist, researcher, speaker, and author. 
She currently serves as the Executive Director of the Learning and Emotional Assessment Program and the Kessler Family Chair in Pediatric Neuropsychological Assessment at Massachusetts General Hospital. She also holds an appointment of Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School. She is the author of the Child's Clinician Report Writing Handbook and How to Find Mental Health Care for Your Child and co-author of the best-selling book, Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up and Straight Talk About Psychological Testing for Kids. And her newest book is Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less, How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation. She earned her MA from the University of Colorado and her PhD from Colorado State University. And today, we are going to talk about what motivates your teen and what doesn't and how you can rekindle it. This is the perfect podcast as we begin another school year. Welcome, Dr. Ellen Broughton. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. So the first question that I ask my guests is if you are a mom, and if so, what are the ages of your kids? So I have two kids. and. They're almost at the age where I like to start to lie about their age, but I have a daughter who's 34 and Whoa. 29. I know my daughter is almost ready to have her first child two weeks from today. Wow, that's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. So we're going to talk about motivation today. And you recently published Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less, How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation which is a great title. Let me just say that. So can you tell us a little bit about the background story and why you wrote the book? So I wrote a book that I published almost 10 years ago now called Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up. And a lot of my research as a psychologist is in kids with slower processing speed. And so there are kids who just take longer to do stuff is sort of the simplest way for me to explain it. And I thought that as I worked with these kids over the years, you know, as we get more experience in our jobs, we learn a lot along the way. And one of the things I was seeing are kids who sort of had trouble keeping up moving on into adulthood. And I sort of thought, well, boy, a lot of them are struggling with motivation and understanding who they are and understanding what is it that makes them tick and want to keep going. And so I thought that I was seeing sort of the skewed sample of kids who were having trouble in young adulthood. And what I found is I started to look at things like, no, there are lots of kids who are having trouble with motivation these days, and it starts way earlier than young adulthood. And then I should say, too, I started to write this book in 2019, didn't finish it before 2020, and it became almost a different kind of book because we're all sort of struggling with motivation and finding meaning and, you know, where do we start over after we've all lost so much? So... I can't say the book addresses all of those things, but that's sort of the journey that I had as an author of this book was that I started in one place and kind of ended up in another. So interesting. And I think we're still reeling from COVID. Completely. I still see kids who are having trouble. The people in college, for example, who, you know, went through their junior and senior year or sophomore, junior and senior year in really, you know, situations that were unpredictable and very different. And now are reaching college and saying, boy, I'm depressed, or they're having these longer lasting effects, which is kind of typical for kids too. They don't always feel the effects of trauma right away. It takes them a while. That's a good point. Yeah. In my private practice, I'm seeing kids who they kind of look back and they just got off track during those COVID years and have had a hard time getting back on track. Yeah. Even This is a little off topic, but I don't know if you remember, there's the bombing in Boston, the Boston Marathon. And we mobilized it to sort of treat kids right away for the trauma and the anxiety that went along with that. Because remember, it wasn't just the bombing, but also there were these suspects that were apprehended. It was very scary. The city was on lockdown and we mobilized mental health professionals to be there to meet the needs of kids. And nobody came. Not right then, but Mm. a year later, two years later, that's when we started seeing the effects of that situation on kids' mental health. So it's interesting to think that we think as adults, let's fix this problem right away. For kids, they are much more adaptable in the moment 
it's a year or two later that they tend to grieve or have those feelings. And I think the same thing's going on for us now post-COVID. That's so interesting and true, really true. So let's just start with defining something, which is what is motivation and what does an unmotivated teen look like? So motivation is simply the reason why we do the things we do. It's the reason why we get off the couch. It's the reason why we go to school, get our paycheck. And there are lots of different kinds of motivation. Some are very extrinsic, where, for example, we work because we want the money. We're motivated to get money to support ourselves. And other things are more intrinsically motivated. We do something because we love it. We paint because we love to paint and we don't care if we ever sell a painting. And both of those kinds of motivations are important. For a child, especially a teen who's unmotivated, what you see is somebody who's not very, in some ways, happy with the things that are in their life right now. They don't love the kinds of choices they have. And they don't really know what gets them off the couch, what is going to get them to be happy or, you know, I don't want to use the word motivated again, but, you know, what's going to cause them to be that excited learner at school. And so an unmotivated kid is often the kid who doesn't come out of his room a lot, complains a lot about the sorts of things that he has to do. You know, in significant cases, it's the child who's just playing video games six or eight hours every day in all of their free time. But it's usually a child who's just not very excited about the world around him or her or them and not excited about the sorts of choices that they have. All right. So I have seen plenty of moms who have kids who play video games and can't get off the couch. If you're a mom of that kid, how do you motivate them? How do you get them off the couch? So I think we have to kind of think about this as a process and not an event, because anybody who's had a child, and really, if you have a, I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize, but most of us, especially a son, again, I don't want to overgeneralize, but Males tend to play more video games. It's not completely universal, but we've all confronted this problem and maybe not to the extent that you just asked about. But I think part of it is when you're in a situation where your child's, that's the only thing they're doing. It has to start with lots of conversations. It has to start with lots of conversations about, I'm seeing you spend a lot of time playing video games. How do you feel about that? And nearly 100% of the time they'll say, nah, it's okay. Nobody really wants to play video games 100% of the time. And so then it's talking to them about what else could we do. I think it's also incumbent on the parent to find out, is there another issue here that could be treated? So a lot of times kids with ADHD will play video games for hours and hours because they have trouble shifting set. They have trouble, you know, changing their focus, for example. It's very easy for them to get over-focused on video games. So if that's an issue, we want to correct anything or want to treat anything that we can. But I think part of it is starting with those kinds of conversations about what are your other options to do right now? And to not start with, we're going to just, you know, cap this right now, no more video games. That always leads to conflict. It's like, I see you doing this. You don't seem that happy and letting it start with a conversation and then lots of follow-up conversations. Let's think about other ways you could spend your time. And sometimes parents will say, I'm afraid they'll say there's nothing else I want to do to spend my time. And that's where you have to help them sort of think about that. Although a lot of times kids will say, I don't know what to do. And then it's up to you as a parent to say, well, we've got to find some of those things out for you. And when you're really trapped in like, what are the options for my child? One of the things to look at is what are the sorts of things that they're grateful for? What are the sorts of things that they do when they're not playing video games, and to help them expand on some of those areas. I completely agree. And I'm sure you've seen this, is that I think the more and more kids are on screens or playing video games, that the online world or the digital world is just their default. It's what they do, and that they have less imagination about what to do in the real world. So they don't think about it. Yeah, completely. And I think if you're listening and you're the parent of a younger child, take note of this, that I think that there are little things that we do as parents these days that sort of encourage that in ways that we don't really think about. So if you've got a 
three-year-old and your only way of entertaining them is with an iPad when you're out for dinner, that's probably going to develop into a 12-year-old who's spending a lot of time on video games. So what seems sort of innocuous at a younger age becomes more of a problem with older kids because they're not developing those skills and those habits of how do I entertain myself at the dinner table when I don't have a screen in front of me. So we've got to look at that in lots of different situations. That's really, really true. That's great. So you use the term malaise to describe kids who couldn't care less. So what do you mean by that? And what does malaisiness look like? So I want to say that it sounds like a bit of a pejorative term, but it was coined by a father that I was working with with a child. He's like, it sounds like what you're describing is sort of a malaise kid, because to me, he seems lazy. And what you're saying, it sounds like a pattern of malaise. And really, I was saying neither one of those things. But I think as a parent, <laughs> you've got a child like that. They do seem sort of this, you know, and I've had lots of parents say to me, well, in my world, we call that lazy. But it's not. No child wants to be lazy. But that is sort of what it looks like. It looks like a child who doesn't know what he wants, who's sort of scrolling through Instagram when he's bored, who's bored a lot of the time or looks like he or she or they are bored a lot of the time. And so it's that sort of persona where it's just like, meh, yeah, whatever, dad, whatever, mom, nothing really thrills me. And so the behaviors that come out of that are ones that are like, you know, there's nothing that really strikes my fancy. So I'm just going to sort of play around for quite a bit. And that's where that term comes from. But it sounds bad. It sounds like I'm, <laughs> I'm saying kids are lazy. Or, but I do think that's the experience of parents oh, is that sure. I've got a child that I'm afraid is lazy or that in my day, we would have called that a lazy child. So how does that compare to an apathetic child? Or is I that think- the same thing? I think it's sort of the same thing, to be honest. Apathy comes from a lot of times, I feel like apathy comes from a lack of knowledge. And so when I'm apathetic about a decision I have to make, it's because I don't have enough information about either one of those decisions to not be apathetic. And that's a good way of sort of thinking about this sort of malaise, apathetic, unmotivated kid. A lot of times that comes from, I don't know about the choices that are out there. I don't have enough information about whether I'm going to be successful if I choose one of those. And so it's all about helping the child learn more about themselves and then learning about the choices that are out there. So part of it is, you know, knowing about what am I good at and what am I more likely to succeed in? That's going to make me, you know, any of us less apathetic about trying something new is if we know whether we can succeed in it. And if we can't, what we need to do in order to feel comfortable doing it. Yeah, and it's interesting to think in terms of the neuroscience of a teen is that they don't want to be bored. They're wired for risk and adventure and doing something new. And so boredom is like, it's awful for them. You're completely right. They are completely wired for stimulus seeking. Their brain is not pruned in a way that they know Yeah, what their limitations are, for example. So you're right. They really are primed for stimulus and to get as much excitement as they can. So you're right. And I think in some ways, in generations before, we had a lot of that because we were more responsible and we were expected to be more responsible. Now kids are more pressured, but they have less responsibility. And one of the ways we deal with pressure, and I'm saying like pressure, you've got to do well at this, you've got to do well at that, everybody's got to go into a good college, that when we're pressured, we even as adults tend to pick up our phones, scroll through the Instagrams, we're like, oh, I've got so much to do. I'm just I'm sitting here. And all of a sudden, 30 minutes has gone by, and you've just spent those 30 minutes on your phone. The same is true for adolescents and young kids. It's like when we're feeling pressured, just put me in front of the TV or a video game. And I feel soothed in the short run. So, yeah, we're not giving them enough normal situations that give them a little bit of that excitement. You know, when you're in charge of running the ice cream store, you have to open it at age 16. You've got to open the neighborhood ice cream store closed. There's a little excitement from that. It Mm -hmm. makes you a little nervous. And it doesn't mean that they have to be out like driving fast cars to get some of that. Part of that can come from just giving them more responsibility. That's a great point. Yeah. 
So what motivates teens, which is every parent listening would want to know that question. And can you tell us about the parenting app, APP? Yeah, well, that would be my answer to the first question. Is that <laughs> what, what I tried to come up with in the book is a way of helping parents answer that question. So the parenting app is really, if you kind of think of it as a Venn diagram with one circle being aptitude, a child's ability, natural abilities, the another circle of that Venn diagram being pleasure, what sort of things give your child pleasure, and the other circle being practice. What does your child tend to do or persist at? And you've got to sort of think about each one of those areas when we're thinking about motivation. We're motivated generally by things that we are good at doing, that we're naturally good at doing. Like, I'm not very good at visual art. I'm not very motivated to take a class in painting because I'm not going to be very good at that. We've got to look at the things that give us pleasure. Sometimes that's the same thing as our aptitudes, but sometimes it isn't. So I'll give you an example of a child who's very good at, let's say, playing the violin. They're naturally gifted at it, but it doesn't give them a whole lot of pleasure for different reasons. We don't always love the things we're naturally good at. But just looking at those two things can cause a conflict in a parent or parent-child relationship where the parent's like, but you're so good at this. I've signed you up for these lessons. You are. And that develops into an unmotivated child that extends far beyond just violin because they're like, I don't have any say over my life. You know, we have to look at both the aptitude and what gives us pleasure. And then also aligned with that is what does my child tend to do when they have nothing else to do, which can give us a good sense of where those three things meet. And in the middle of those three things tends to be where we are motivated. And so when I say, you know, what does my child tend to persist at? Do they tend to persist at practicing with guitar, even though they're just okay at it? but it gives them a lot of pleasure, that's something that they're motivated to do. Again, if you've got a child who's very good at the violin, doesn't tend to persist at it despite their aptitude, we need to sort of think like, oh, all right, you're great at the violin, but you don't love it. Is there another area of music that you love? Is there something else that aligns with this? Sometimes it just isn't. Sometimes there's a great soccer player in fifth grade who just doesn't want to play soccer anymore, and we've got to let that go. So those are ways that motivation can be nurtured, but also sort of motivation killers, even in kids who are generally motivated sort of kids. Yeah. All right. So I think high school can be really challenging because you're forced to take these classes that do not bring you pleasure and you might not have an aptitude for them and you probably don't want to persist at them. So how can parents help their kids with these classes that they have to take in high school? So you nailed it completely. <laughs> I think this is a huge contributing factor that the whole college process, a huge contributing factor to unmotivated kids. And it starts way back in middle school, perhaps even earlier in upwardly mobile communities for sure. But not only, it's surprising how universal this tends to be in the U.S. and even beyond. So I think in this case, it's got to start with a lot of discussions about what the child wants to do. So when you say they have to take these classes, if you've got a child who has to take these classes for college and hates these classes, that is going to be a child who I can almost guarantee is going to not want to take those classes in college. So my feeling is the first thing that has to happen is a reflection of what's going on. You do not seem to be happy taking these classes. These classes are important for college. You're telling me perhaps that you don't want to go to college. What is that about? And sometimes it's a student who feels unprepared, anxious, or just doesn't really want to go to college. And in that case, what you need to do is expand their world and say, okay, you know, and sometimes as a parent, you've got to say, my dream was for you to always go to college. But there really are lots of paths to adulthood. And sometimes this sort of situation starts with the parent realizing, boy, I need to let go of that dream or at least explore whether that's a realistic dream for my child at this point in time. And so saying, okay, what are the classes? And I kind of feel like college is essential for kids who want a career in something where it takes nursing, being a doctor, a teacher. There are certain things where you have to have a college degree. 
And then there are other things where you don't. And you need to talk to your child about, again, what is it that you kind of see yourself doing after high school? Parents almost never have this conversation with their child. It's just assumed they're going to college and that's all. But if you could plan your own life for the age of 18 and 19, what do you see yourself doing? And for some kids, it's like, I don't see myself in college. But then the conversation often shifts to, well, I just want to travel for a while. Well, that's not an option either. Do you know what I mean? So you have to find a middle ground in that. Are there vocational programs? Are there ways that you could spend a year while you figure out whether college is the right thing? Are you good at, you know, engineering? Are there work programs where you can go right into a job for, you know, skilled labor? There's a lots of different, you know, I give an example of a child who's very into cosmetology, really wants to go right from high school into in a one-year program for Aveda, for example. And their parents say, well, no, not until after you finish college. Why? You know, I've seen some of the happiest kids are ones who have gone right into the workforce because they're doing something that they love. And, you know, kids love being responsible. And so that's another aspect that's important to consider. Yeah, what you're bringing up is what I see a lot that doesn't work. And I understand it because I'm a parent, but it's more like we're telling them something. Like we're telling them, like, if you don't go to college, you're really limiting your future. You know, you're not going to make a good living. If you want to make a good living, if you want to support your family, if you want to do this, then you need to do this. And the problem with that, you know, and that may be completely true, but the problem is you haven't tapped into what your kid wants. You haven't allowed them to get their own thoughts out on the table. So then they just shut down and they're just like, they get angry, but you don't hear who they are, which is. What I'm loving about what you're saying is that you're tapping into what do they want? What seems interesting, meaningful, fun, challenging to them? Yeah. And I think that, too, you bring up a good point about the statistics and the statistics that we base a lot of our reasoning on are quite outdated. And they do not take into account the fact that most people, when they do go to college and do not have a parent to pay for it, come out with $250,000, $300,000 worth of debt. So there isn't really a lot of data that shows that going to college now is a simple, you know, it, this was based on 40 years ago. Yes, people who went to college, it was a small slice of the population who went to college. They did do better. But it's not like, for example, going to a college where you're just checking a box off and you don't excel there and it's not a great college and you have worth of debt, or your parents do as they're entering retirement years, that is not a good situation unless you come out of college thinking, I have the job of my dreams. And a lot of times that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. That's really, really true. I experienced that with my own daughter. I mean, I have three master's degrees and, you know, I love college. I love education. And I remember taking her on a college visit and she just cried. And she didn't want to do that. She went to a fine arts school and did dancing and, you know, it's not what she wanted. So she kind of went the route of certifications. Mm -hmm. So she got certified in massage. She got an advanced certification in neuromuscular massage. And then she got a certification in yoga and then Ayurvedic, you know, counseling. So she's built a whole business in healthcare, and she's quite successful, and she's really interested in learning. She's still taking certifications and finding mentors and excited about things and really completely motivated and excited about what she's learning. But if I had tried to make her go to college, I mean, she showed me in that minute that that's not what she wanted. Yeah. I mean, a lot of parents can't do that. Understandably, it's hard because you're letting go of your dream for her. And that's hard for us to do as parents. But you're right. I've seen this over and over again, the opposite and exactly what you're saying. And it's such a great story. I have similar, I have two kids. One of my children loves school. She didn't even know what she wanted to major in. You know, I said before that college should be for people who know what, you know, you have to have a degree to go there. But I also think education is great just for education. 
but you have to love school. Like you've got to fill out the applications on your own. You know, if you're filling those applications out on your own, you have a child who's not motivated to go to college. And then your job is to figure out, well, what do you want to do instead? You know, my son who's 29, he told me all through high school, he didn't really want to go to college. But this was 15 years ago. And I did not have the knowledge I do now because I was like, but everybody has to go to college, but you're going to decrease your chances of getting the right kind of job. Instead of saying, what is the right job for you? And how do we increase your chances? As opposed to college always increases, but what is the job you want? And how do we increase your chances of doing that? So, you know, he didn't finish college and he might someday, who knows? But he's in retail. He loves it. He's great with people. He's naturally good at that. And so if I had just let him go into that right away, we might have saved money, but he also might have felt better about himself earlier in his adulthood. Yeah, I agree. I think today there are more and more paths. Like you said, there's many paths to adulthood that isn't just college. And I just think if that could get sink into parents, that could help us just relax a little bit and not make everything so high stakes. Like you have time. Completely. I think it's the number one thing we need to focus on as a society because that's where it all leads for so many of us is college. Not even, I was going to say flunk out of college, but you just quit college is a huge loss for everybody. It's embarrassing. But at the same time, and something like 50% of kids don't finish college anymore. So we're sending kids who are not either ready or don't want to go. But the other thing I've had parents tell me is, well, what would I tell the other parents at graduation when, you know, high school graduation and he doesn't have a college next to his name where he's going? Hmm. And so it's hard. There's kind of a shame built into not going to college that we need to let go of. Right. Which leads me to stress. So how does stress impact a teen's motivation? And what are some ways that kids can decrease that level of stress? You know, it's funny. I think that we've even talked about some of these things, like decreasing this issue about the college process, for example. But I think that one of the things that we can do in terms of stress is reflect to our kids when they seem to be stressed and also reflect our own stress. So that's a big part of it. And I think for a lot of kids, especially in the high school and middle school years, a lot of it is about how we view our view of the future. So it's like, we're using our own hopes and dreams, which puts a lot of stress on them Mm -hmm. as opposed to using their own hopes and dreams. And so I think some of the things we can do, though, to help them is to just bring down the conflict in general in our homes that keep to a daily kind of routine. Like, don't do anything that's not necessary for them to do. You know, you mentioned before about what would I tell the parent whose child doesn't want to do all of the college prep or AP classes that they're doing, I would say, well, don't do them all. Instead of trying to make the classes right, is to have a conversation about, you seem really stressed with your course load this year. What are the classes you love? Let's focus on those and push yourself in those. And what are the things you can kind of take a pass in? And let's move down a notch in those classes. So that's one way to sort of just realistically assess the situation. And then also, I think one thing that we never think about when we think about stress is sleep. Kids are not getting the right amount of sleep. It's the number one way for us to de-stress ourselves, recharge ourselves. It has to be part of every single discussion about how to de-stress our lives is to get more sleep, period. So good sleep hygiene, not being on our phones, making your child put their phone outside of the door. And when it's bedtime and that door gets closed or the phone goes down in the kitchen or wherever it is, but that's one huge way of helping them manage their own sleep. A child should not be sleeping with their phone in their room. Neither should we, but I mean, (laughs) I have trouble (laughs) applying this to myself. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so true. It's hard to not have that phone in your room. So, you know, if it's hard for us, how hard it is for those kids. Exactly. All right. So 
I think this leads to this next question. You know, as parents, we have our own level of stress and it's intense. I mean, I love working with moms and and that's what I what I'm always working with, kind of the internal dynamics for a mom. And there's so much stress that we feel on an every single day about the future. And I think the stress is related to our expectations for our teens. And what creates a lot of drama is that we have our expectations for our teens, and then our teens have their own expectations for themselves. So what do we do with that? You know, one of the things that comes to mind that I say a lot, in fact, I know it's one of the chapters in my book, love the child you have, not the child you wish you had. And so much stress comes from that conflict is that we have these hopes and dreams for our child. We want them to do a certain thing. We want them to dress a certain way. We want them to be a certain kind of person. And we've got to learn to love them for who they are, because I think that is an area of real stress. I also think that we get stressed when we see our own child suffer. And by suffer, I don't mean like suffer, big, big suffering, but even the small things. We are so hypersensitive to our own kids' stress that it stresses us out. And we need to learn to sort of triage our stressors and their stressors. Kids are going to be anxious. We need to figure out, does the anxiety that my child has or the anxiety I have match the actual situation? And so being able to apprise, like, right now I feel this stress. Is this realistic for the situation? Let's look at this situation. If it is, then we need to seek help and we need to get support from professionals like you, our friends, all those sorts of things. But sometimes it doesn't. And we need to be able to just at that point say, oh, okay, I feel anxious, but the anxiety doesn't really match what the situation calls for. And knowing that can sometimes help. We definitely need to teach our kids to be able to do that. I think that really is one of the most useful things we can teach our kids. Yeah. Oh, that's super helpful. So you also talk about goodness of fit. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where we all kind of learned it in sort of intro psych class about temperaments and the child that we kind of have. But it really points to the fact that sometimes for all of us who have more than one child, the things that we learned with one do not apply to the other. And part of that is due to goodness of fit and the different sort of, you know, if we have the kind of personality that is laid back and we have a really high driven, high strung sort of child or more often the other way, we are very high, you know, driven type A and we have a child who is more laid back who, you know, I mentioned before a slower processor, for example, and we're a very fast processor. That's going to be hard for us because of that goodness of fit. It's not, you know, it's not a natural fit. We have to make it into a natural fit. And in some ways, our opposite can be the right kind of fit, but we've got to have an awareness of what's going on and being able to see that how our differences can actually be complementary, but it can take a while for us to learn that. All right. So I'm just going to throw happiness in the mix. So we have expectations. And I think a lot of times parents' expectations are you coming from a great place because we want our kids to be happy. Oh. This is the best question because in my intake form, when I see a child, one of the questions on my intake along with, you know, what's the reason for being here? What do you wish for your child? I don't know how I I have it actually written. I can almost see it here in one of my, but what are your wishes for your child? What would you like your child to be when he or she grows up? That's what it is here. And it's almost universally happy, almost universally anything that she wants to be as long as she's happy. And really, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) Life is not really about being happy. It might be about being content. It might be about being satisfied most of the time. But happy is really the result of good goals. It's not a goal in itself. But we have taught our kids that happiness is a goal in and of itself. And nobody's happy all the time. Do you know what I mean? So it's right feel like failures. In fact, most of life is kind of drudgery, being in the car, commuting, cleaning out the dishwasher, all of those sorts of things. It's more about 
acceptance and contentment than it is about happiness. But kids know this. They know my parent wants me to be happy and I can't do it. Like, I don't know how to do it. I don't see anybody else doing it. So why am I expected to do this, to do something that's impossible for me? And for some kids, they're just like, yeah, I can't do it. So, and that's where the end motivation comes into play. I love that about contentment. So that's a really good thing to think about. And so in terms of goodness of fit, if it is a good fit and they're doing what they want to do, if they're doing the parenting app and those things are present, then they're going to be content. I think so. I mean, really contentment comes a lot from us knowing ourselves and being in situations where we feel competent. And so that's really what a lot of that parenting app and sort of thinking about motivation is, first of all, understanding who am I? What am I good at doing? What gives me pleasure? And then what are the sorts of situations where I feel competent? We sort of said, well, happiness is hard, but that really is where it happens for us, where we're feeling content. And when we have the experience of happiness is when we're like, I feel like I can do this. And also being able to know that life isn't always going to match up for me. And how do I get back on track from that, which is, you know, sort of resiliency, but knowing, okay, you know what, when I'm in these sorts of situations, I have trouble in this way. Here's who I go to for help. That's also part of that whole sort of knowing myself is knowing what I'm good at, but also where I tend to struggle and what helps me when I do struggle. Oh, this is really, really good. I think I have to do a whole podcast on happiness because it's complicated because we as moms will do anything. We will sacrifice everything to make our kids happy. So we get enslaved to making our kids happy. And then they know that. And then they use that as a weapon against us a lot. Totally. Like when my kids are happy, I'm happy. But you're right. And it's also for some kids a real source of control over their parents when they don't have control over other things. Maybe other parts of their life are going bad. They can also control your happiness by not being happy. So it works both ways. But you're right. I think it's such a hard thing for us to master. And I have to say, like, I do want my kids to be happy. Like, I know exactly what they're saying. But yeah, it's impossible. Oh, that's so good. All right. So you say, don't be a helicopter, be a fire starter. What do you mean? So a fire starter, when you think about what fire needs to be, you know, inflamed, it needs air or space. It needs heat, which is sort of passion, and it needs fuel. And so think about that when you're thinking about motivation. Kids need space. They need air to sort of try things out. We can't just suffocate them by saying, okay, Here's what I think you should be doing. They also need some passion. So they've got to have that spark to think like, I want to try this. I want to try this class or do this. And then they also need fuel, which actually oftentimes you need to provide as a parent. So they show an interest in something. You need to follow up on that. Determine whether or not this kind of course is the right one. Is this going to snuff it out because there's you know too little air for exploration? Or is it going to add in terms of fuel? So kind of think about that, that motivation, it needs all of those sorts of things in order to start a fire. You know, and I can tell you, I did this myself as a parent. My child would have just a little bit of interest in something, sort of like start to draw clothes for their Barbie doll or something. And I'd be like, we're enrolling you in a sewing (laughs) course for, you know, like designers, dress designers. And they never touched it again. Because we tend to, you know, I tended to do some of that. And so we need to say like, you know, that's great. Let me know if you need some more pens or, you know, like some, you know, instead of like, I researched the best course, you know, like, yes, I really did that. My daughter never did another dress again. I mean, luckily she was only 11. I don't think we are losing the world's next Oscar de la Renta, but you know what I mean? Oh my gosh, I totally know. Yeah. All right. So the last question is, Chapter nine is titled, Set Goals That You Can Both Get Behind. So first, what is an effective goal? And two, how can a parent and teen get on the same page with their goals? So I think an effective goal is one that is very clear, where you know exactly what it is that the goal is, and also one that can be revised. I give an example of 
when a child is like overwhelmed in school and you have to come up with a plan for like, what's your goal? My goal is to just pass this English class. Okay, so what does that mean? What do you need? What are the things that you need to do in order to do that? And then be able to revise goals. You want them to make sure they're clear, they're specific, and they're developmentally appropriate. So how do you do that? I mean, you need to have conversations with your child about, you know, what it is that they want. What are the kinds of things that are important to you? The beginning of the school year is a great time to say, what is it that you want to accomplish this year? And it's never too young to have those sorts of things for a young child. It might be to be a good reader, to read a chapter book. It might be something like that. And you want to talk to them too about, well, what makes you care about those goals? Why are those goals important to you? And with older kids, even talking to them about, imagine yourself at age 15, at age 20, at age 30, what kind of things do you want to have achieved by that age? We don't usually engage kids in forward thinking in that way. And I think that helps them figure out what their goals are today, especially teens. This is sort of thinking about, imagine your perfect day as an adult. What would that day look like, for example? You know, and even back to happiness, what does it mean to be a happy person? What does that mean? Imagine yourself in a time when you're really on a day when you're really feeling happy. What are the sorts of things that need to happen in order for you to do that? And then making goals from those answers that they're giving you. You know, think about what needs to be accomplished. Why is it important? Who needs to be involved in helping you accomplish that goal? And then the most important thing is revising the goals. Goals, we almost never meet our very first draft of a goal. It has to be revised. And that doesn't mean you're a failure. It means that goals are there to be an aspiration and you continue to revise them as you get more information. And that's where things go wrong oftentimes for parents and kids. It's like, well, we didn't make that goal. So that was a bad goal as opposed to we needed to revise that along the way. I love that about revising goals. Because I think in this really stressed perfectionistic world that we live in, it's all or nothing. So if it's like, you know, I didn't practice, so I'm just going to give up singing. It's just all or nothing. So revising it is doable. It's like, okay, well, maybe that's too many times to practice. Let's revise that. Exactly. You know, that's why diets don't work. Well, I cheated this day. I might as well just eat the whole box of cookies. And it's the same. It's like, no, that's part of it. Like when you don't practice, it just means that either something came up or you didn't feel like it. Maybe it's the piece. Like there are lots of ways to look at why didn't I practice? It could be, I love playing, but I hate this piece. Well, that's an easy fix. You know, if you go to your teacher and say like, I don't like this kind, whatever it is, it could be something as simple as that, that is making you not want to do something. Or it could be, you know, it's just too many. Like you said, we just bit off more than we could chew. It's just too much to start with. Kind yeah. of like exercising. You can't start with the marathon as your goal when right. you haven't exercised for years. Right. I really agree. Goals are so important and revising goals and all of that. And for a parent, you really want to get your teen's goals and it's not your goal for them. And you really want to communicate about that. Because if your teen says to you, I really want to be great at soccer and then they do nothing then you can help hold them accountable to what they say they want. You can say, well, you said you wanted to be really good at soccer. So what would that take to be good at soccer? Exactly. Yeah. What would it take? And what are you willing to do in order to be good at soccer? So I think both of those things have to be talked about. And then also as a parent, you have to know, like, is my child really good at soccer or not so good at soccer? So that you can support them in that way. Like sometimes what a child wants to do is not really in their skill set. Like my son was super skinny as a kid, wanted to try out for Pop Warner football. And I don't remember what it was, but he looked like in the helmet, like one of those little football things that you sometimes see at the back of cars. It was just this little head just bouncing along with all these other boys. You know, he was young first grade, but I let him try it. But it was one of those things. He was desperate to do this. After the third day, I realized, he realized too, that it wasn't his thing. And I thought he's going to kill himself. And so there have to be some times when kids are like, I really want to do this, give them the opportunity and have that conversation with them. Like sometimes you're like, nope, you tried out for this. This is important. And other times you're like, 
you tried out for this. I really admire you for that. Let's pick a different sport that's more in line with your body type. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. There has to be that open, really thoughtful flexibility on the part of a parent as opposed to rigid thinking about um, Mm. that. Right. Flexibility is so important. Yeah. That can dial down a lot of drama just right there. And it's not like you're losing anything as a parent. You're not a failure as a parent. It's actually helping so much. It's that revision of the goals, like you said. Yeah. All right. So this has been a great conversation. What last advice do you have for the moms listening? Oh, my gosh. I almost always in this time say love the child you have, not the child you wish you had, which I said already. But I think it's worth saying again. I know that myself as a parent, it's so easy for us to, you know, look at our child and think, I want you to fulfill all the things I didn't get to do. I want you to not make the mistakes that I made and to sort of let them be the person they are and trust that they're going to be okay. It's the hardest thing to do as a parent, I think. It is, but that's great advice. All right. So for the moms out there who are curious about your book, where can they get their book? How can they contact you? My website is ellenbrottenphd.com. You can get the book from any of the online booksellers or order it from your local bookstore. The publisher is guilford.com. And you can order off their website, but also it is in bookstores and online. Yeah. And again, that book is Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less, How to Rekindle Your Child's Motivation. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it very much. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning best-selling books, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com. And that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.